Okay, so today we're going to start with talking about common uh, Paleozoic marine invertebrates for the first half of the lecture. And then the second half of the lecture we'll go on to discuss uh, land plants, all uh, under the realm of the Paleozoic time period. Okay, so if you go to the second slide, um, the key thing that you need to know about the Paleozoic invertebrates is that they are filter feeders. So what that means is that they sit on the bottom of the ground, so in the ocean, on the floor of the ocean most times, or on a coral reef or some other sort of reef. There weren't corals in the Paleozoic, so it would be something besides a coral reef. Um, but uh, basically what they have is uh, they would be sitting there and they'd be filtering the water. And they're basically collecting um, organic matter uh, in the water. Typically, the adults live stationary on the seafloor or they are attached to a substrate. So the substrate could be a reef, for example. And when I said before um, coral reefs, I didn't mean um, all coral reefs because there definitely were corals during that time period, but they're not the same type of corals that we have today. So if you were to go to the Caribbean or just Florida Keys even someplace and you'd look at the reefs there, um, they look very different in the Paleozoic than the, what they look like um, today. And uh, there are six common groups. So when we talk about classifying uh, the Paleozoic fauna, the invertebrates fall into sponges, corals, bryozoans, brachiopods, bivalves, and then crinoids. So those are all different, uh, really cool little fossils. All right, so when we talk about sponges, this is the first one. Mm -hmm. Yep, SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> the age range for these um, range from the Precambrian and they are um, all the way to the present. So if you guys ever go to the store and if you go into um, like the pharmaceutical section and you're looking for like a bath sponge, sometimes you'll see those natural ones that are kind of brownish in color. Those are actually um, harvested from a real sponge. So those ones are real, the ones that are kind of that brownish color that uh, you can maybe use for making little stamps or something like that. Um, that would be a sponge. They are the simplest of the invertebrates. They're benthic, meaning that they live on the bottom of the floor. Sessile, meaning they don't really move around. So they're stationary in their position, in their spot. And typically we see them as a cup or a vase shaped with pores that allow the water to flow through. So just how you can think of a sponge uh, absorbs water when they're actually growing in the water, the water will flow through it. And many times they have something that are called a spicule. So it can be uh, like a little needle of either calcite or silica quartz. Um, and this is essentially to support the tissues. So um, yeah, so it's really cool. And a lot of times um, in the rock record, we'll actually have uh, like little layers of their spicules and uh, they end up turning sometimes into like chert nodules, um, if you guys remember chert at all. So it's essentially silica, like quartz that comes from the glass windows, something like that. Um, they'll actually uh, fall off of the sponges and they can accumulate sort of around the sponges and form little layers. All right, so these are the two different um, morphologies. Uh, one we refer to as a cup shape or more of a vase shape. And you see over here on the left, so there's actually like a central cavity um, 
And then there's another type called encrusting. And this is essentially, um, it grows on top of a, a substrate. And you can see here, these are the little cups or the little pores. The scale is very different uh, from this size pore compared to these tiny little pores over here. Um, if you guys are all at all familiar with um, like barnacles, they're, it's a modern uh, type of uh, crustacean that actually forms on a ship or um, sometimes on like whales. They'll have like little seashells along their sides. Um, this is, it behaves the same way. It's not a barnacle, but it essentially, it'll grow and encrust onto something else that's already there. And it can be a rock. It can be um, other types of sponges. It can be a coral. It just it can be anything generally, but something that's stationary and it'll actually grow on it. So it's really cool. Uh, this is the morphology, uh, a diagram. Um, don't get too caught up in all of these, uh, these, these words, all this terminology. I'm not really going to focus on the terminology, but I just want you to generally know um, what a sponge is. So here um, you can see that where the cups are, if you will, or the vases, uh, this is where the water would flow in and out. So the water will flow into the pores along the side and then out through the cups. And then this is just a more detailed picture of what the internal structure of the sponge would look like. Okay, so here's another picture. So this is more of a cartoon. So the intake of the water is um, out here in the outer part where all the little pores sit. And then it circulates through the body of um, the little critter and then it comes out through the cup or the main opening. And that's where the filtration of the food particles or the organic matter takes place. So this would just be really good, a good slide to understand that this is biologically how they work. These are pictures of uh, the spicules. So like the little, um, it's like the little decoration. It, it holds sort of the, the soft body part of the animal together. Uh, they're composed of silica or calcite, if you remember that from the mineralogy section. Um, if you would like to look at silica or calcite, I can show you some hand samples of it. These are all microscopic. So you might be able to feel them, maybe be able to see them with the naked eye, but a lot of them to see the details, you're really gonna have to look at them underneath a high powered microscope. So that's what's really cool about it is you see all these really beautiful shapes and different sort of spicule morphology. And this is what I was talking about earlier that will actually, uh, sometimes it accumulates on the bottom of the ocean. It'll actually form like a little layer of silica, which can then be sort of turned into a, a nodule if there's any, once it's been, they stack up on each other and it's been, been compacted. So um, yeah, that's a lot of times this is what we use in the rock record to actually identify that sponges were there, were sometimes just the evidence of the spicules. So it's really, really neat. Okay, so here's another one. Uh, this is a different group or a phylum. This is Cenaria. Um, it's kind of a weird word to pronounce. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. But the age range for this one is also uh, Precambrian through the recent. And this is composed of corals. Uh, jellyfish and sea anemones. This is a picture of a sea anemone over here and this is the one that like if you were to touch it or go closer it would like close up like a flower kind of if you guys remember uh, finding Nemo the anemones from that cartoon. Uh, this animal or these animals can be solitary so they stay in one position or colonial um, sorry, the solitary would mean like a single, a single organism and the colonial would be, uh, meaning many organisms all living together. 
They can be benthic attached, meaning that they're attached to the ground or a substrate, and then nectonic, meaning that they can swim around. So like jellyfish, you, I'm sure you guys are very familiar with jellyfish. Um, they swim around in the ocean. Uh, all of these, one thing to note, they all possess stinging cells in their tentacles that will trap the food. So usually, um, like, I don't know if you guys have ever been stung by a jellyfish. Uh, if you accidentally kind of bump one of them, they can send out their stinging cells. But typically they will do that in order to paralyze uh, like their food and then that allows them to eat it. So it's sort of a predatory uh, thing. And typically um, for environment or depositional environment, the water conditions, they need to be warm water. So you'll see these critters in the tropics, so close to the equator. And then you also need clear uh, and normal marine water. So it can't be too saline and it's not gonna be necessarily near a delta where you have fresh water being put into the ocean. So that's why typically these will grow uh, really, really well in like a place like the Caribbean, for example. Uh, this is what they look like, a little cartoon. So you have uh, the polyp form. Uh, this is where it is uh, sessile, so it's sedentary, and then it's benthic, so it sits on the bottom of the floor. And then it has these little tentacles sitting out up in here. So these are the ones that sit on the ground. And then you also have uh, the mobile ones, so the, the nectonic ones, the ones that can swim around in the, in the body or in the water, if you will, the body of water. Uh, this is referred to as the medusa form. So this is really cool. All right, this is what a stinging cell looks like. So it's called uh, a syndoblast is the stinging cell. And you can see here, this is actually really small. It's an up close picture of what it looks like. And uh, this is just a drawing of it right here. So, yeah, it's like a little barb, if you will. Little spines, has barbs sticking out on the end. And then here's where it's actually attached to um, like the coral or the, the animal part itself. All right, so you guys probably have a pretty good picture of what these look like, but what you, what's in your mind and like something in Finding Nemo, that would be something that's modern. Back in the Paleozoic, things looked a little bit different. So you kind of have to use your imagination a little bit. There were, um, these are two main types of corals. Uh, one was called a rugos coral. That's this guy sitting right here. And then also a tabulate coral sitting over here. These are the two types that dominated the Paleozoic. Uh, we think that they secreted calcite or aragonite uh, for their outer skeleton. Uh, we aren't 100% sure just because we can't go back to the Paleozoic time period and actually see what they were uh, precipitating. But yeah, so this is, um, this is what they look like. Another uh, phylum that we refer to is called uh, Bryozoa. This age range is from the Ordovician to the present. Uh, these are tiny little sand-sized colonial organisms. So they live in a colony, if you will. And um, they're benthic, so they're uh, bottom dwelling. They're sessile, so they're attached to uh, a substrate. And these also require clear to normal marine water. So you don't wanna have um, pollution, for example. These guys can't tolerate pollution. Um, they can't tolerate high salinity or fresh water. So a lot of times, uh, the reason why we talk about um, like pollution and like protecting our oceans, it's 
these types of animals are very, very sensitive to pollution, to organic matter, uh, fresh water, and oversaline water. So that's why a lot of time uh, you hear people talking about uh, pollution, ocean pollution, and it's to protect these guys because they just can't tolerate, tolerate it and then they die off and you lose your biodiversity essentially. Uh, within the Paleozoic, there are two main types of bryozoans. You had the stony uh, or the branching. So they literally formed like little beautiful, delicate little branches. And typically we don't see those branches preserved. We'll just see little bits and pieces of them preserved. And then also the fenestrate um, bryozoa. And those ones are actually, they look like little... Um, you see little bits and pieces of them typically, and they look like uh, like a screen on a window. They just look like someone kind of cut little pieces of a screen from a window. And um, typically we don't see them in their life form, but those we also see broken up in little bits and pieces. Do those have staying cells as well? Uh, these ones, I do not believe so, no. All right, this is the morphology of the bryozoans. Uh, you can see here that this is sort of the main, the main part where they live. Uh, this is, these are the sand size ones. So these are the ones that are really, really tiny. Um, they have a U-shaped digestive tract. So that's this part right here. Uh, they also have these tentacles that sit out here. And uh, these are just the different names, the zooid, the lophophore, the zoosia. The um, I'm not expecting you guys to know the terminology for that. And then also to note that they have a retractor muscle. So sometimes, you know, if there's some sort of movement or a fish moving along, that they'll retract into um, this part of the organism right here. This is what they look like. So these are pictures of uh, the fossils. Uh, this is the stony, uh, the branching bryzoan col colonies. So each of these little bumps, that's where one of the animals lives in each of those tiny little bumps. And then this is the colony, so they all live collectively together. This is referred to as massive or encrusting. So once again, um, it'll encrust like a pre-existing structure. So either like a rock or a pre-existing coral, something like that. And then this is the branching over here. So you can just see that they literally look like little twigs, broken up twigs. And that's typically what we see in the rock record. There's also uh, these other ones, these little massive sort of blobs, if you will. All right, this is the fenestrate bryzone. So these are the ones that I said that look sort of like a window screen. Uh, these are essentially, they have plates with large openings and the screens, they let the water pass through. And uh, another thing that's really cool is that they generally, they have these screens, but they grow in the shape of a corkscrew. So typically what you'll end up seeing in the rock record is you see the little bits of the screen, and then you see the central part that looks like a corkscrew. But it's pretty rare to see it all put together just because they were really delicate, uh, delicate things. So this is what it looks like um, here. So this is the corkscrew. The little, just the central part is typically what you see. And then sometimes you'll see the broken up bits of the screen in the deposit. And this is referred to, uh, the formal name is Archimedes. So Archimedes screw, if you will. All right. The next one we'll speak about, or I'll share with you, is uh, the phylum Brachiopoda, so brachiopods. These uh, range in age from Cambrian to recent, although they're not as common now as what they were back in the Paleozoic. They're super diverse in the Paleozoic. Uh, they have two different uh, sized calcite or possibly phosphorus, so phosphatic shells. 
they have a bilateral symmetry that grows across the shell. So um, let me just quickly explain that to you. So typically when you think of like a clam, if you will, uh, that, that is symmetrical. So if you have a clam and you have two pieces of the clam, you have a hinge and it's symmetrical parallel to the hinge. So you can close it and it's like a mirror shape of itself. Uh, this is a little bit different. If you take one of the brachiopod shell and you look at it, the symmetry is perpendicular to the hinge. So if you look at one of those shells, you can, it's a mirror of itself. So one shell is like if you folded one of the shells in half, that's a mirror of itself. Whereas the clams, they, um, you take two and then you have the hinge where they're connected and then that's the mirror of itself. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? I can draw a picture of it um, if you guys want me to explain it a little bit better. Yeah, picture? Okay. So when you're dealing with clams, they kind of make this butterfly shape like this. And the symmetry of the organism, so this is the hinge where it's connected and then it may look like this. So the, the symmetry is the two of these looking together, they're mirror images of each other. When you're dealing with a, uh, a brachiopod, it's a little bit different. So we'll look at it like a top view. So typically one will look like this and the hinge line will be like back behind here and then the other part of the shell will like be right here. And what happens is, so this is the hinge line right here, and the symmetry is perpendicular to the hinge line. So this, this side will be a reflection of this side over here. So that's how they differ. And typically this other half of the shell is gonna be like a different size. So it won't necessarily be a mirror image of that. So hopefully that makes, that makes a little bit of sense. That's kind of the main morphological differences of the two. Um, same thing, they require clear, normal marine water. One thing also, uh, a unique characteristic of these is that they can live in colder water than let's say a coral or some of the other organisms that we've talked about. So you will, um, you can see these at higher latitudes. So they aren't gonna grow like at the North and the South Pole necessarily, but they can grow in colder water than like a typical, what you think of like the Caribbean and the coral reefs and the beaches and stuff like that. So yeah, so this is what I was talking about with the, um, the bilateral symmetry. So this is just more of a, uh, a detailed sketch of what it is to be uh, bilateral symmetry versus um, having the symmetry of like a clamshell. Um, let's see, I'm gonna skip this slide. We don't need to worry about this. Uh, this is a picture of what they look like right here. So the productive brachiopods, these are really cool. So they kind of look similar to what you guys would, what you know as a, um, like a, a shell, if you will. Um, what's really cool about these guys is see these little bumps sitting on the shell right here. Um, it probably would have had spines at some time. So these guys can get little spines, kind of like a sea urchin, if you know what a sea urchin is. And where those bumps are, that's where the spine would have been attached. Typically in the rock record, once again, because the spines are really delicate, they break off and you just don't necessarily see them preserved. Sometimes you'll find them preserved, but not always. All right, so this is something that you guys are gonna be really familiar with, 
mollusca and then the class bivalvia so these are bivalves these are clamshells these are the things that you can order in a restaurant and eat uh the age range here is the cambrian through the recent um they have two of the same size shells composed of calcite and aragonite and uh, once again the symmetry is parallel to the hinge so it's between the two shells typically these are benthic meaning bottom dwelling and these guys are tough so they can live in variable salinity they can live in variable water temperature water depth and the water doesn't necessarily have to be clear so i think that's why um especially nowadays these guys are they can be an invasive species in certain areas so for example i grew up on a really big lake um, up in wisconsin and they're uh they're called zebra mussels up there they have completely infested the lakes up there so there's tons of farming and all of the fertilizer runoff from all the farms like everywhere outside of the cities they collect in the lakes making the lakes um they have algae blooms and when you have algae blooms and they die and then there's really low oxygen levels in the lake so it kills off a lot of the fish there's just a very low biodiversity within the lakes up there because of all the farming in the area so what you'll have is you'll have organisms like uh this type bivalves or clams and they can tolerate really low oxygen they can live in really nasty skanky water and what will happen is they'll come in and they'll just completely take over. So if you go on the beach, there's literally more clam bits broken, like broken up bits of clam shells than there is sand on the beach. And they just, they live like everywhere. And um, a lot of times what'll happen is you'll have like the DNR, that's like the, if you will, like the BLM equivalent. So it's sort of the people that oversee the land management that are employed by the state government. Uh, there's huge efforts to dredge some of those up and kind of they pull them up out of the water because they're literally like everywhere. You can't even walk in it because you'll cut up your feet. So they'll pull them up from the water and they'll just make piles and piles and piles of them along the beaches. And it's just these massive piles of these clamshells. And they're just like about this big. They're not big enough that you can actually eat, not that you'd want to ever eat anything out of that lake anyways. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's really interesting to see how some of these guys, um, they'll take over and just completely, it'll be like one species in the entire lake. It's kind of sad. So anyways, this is what they look like. Um, I'm not going to expect you to know all the detailed names, all these names. So when you're reviewing for your uh, exam next week, Thursday, a week from today, um, we'll definitely not be asking you on all the, the detailed vocabulary, but just the concepts. So you'll have to generally know what it is and, you know, the life where it can live, essentially. So this guy, remember bivalves, they have, they're tough and they can live in a wide variety of environments. All right, so these are, um, this is their feeding habits. So they are either gonna be um, deposited feeders, so they burrow into the sediment, and um, they may stick up a little bit and filter feed the organic matter, um, or they're gonna actually burrow into the sediment and eat the organic matter in the sediment. So if you guys remember us talking about like bioturbation or like feeding traces, these guys can actually cause uh, like the sand can, it'll actually show you like when you have a burrow or a feeding trace in your sand, we talked about it on Tuesday if you remember, I can review it if you wanna go over it. But if you have a burrow, this could potentially be something that is causing um, 
like the burrow or the feeding trace in the sand if you are looking at like a sedimentary structure in the sand body and then the sediment has been disrupted these guys will disrupt the sediment all right and then I think this is the last one, um, or second to last one, the Philo um, Echinodermatata. So these are echinoderms, that's the short name for them. Um, these are range in age from the Cambrian through the recent. Uh, this is essentially, um, these are the cup animals. These are really beautiful. They look like They look like flowers, but they're animals. You can see in the picture right here. The skeleton is a cup uh, with many arms, and it's actually attached on the end of a stalk, if you will, and it's composed of many calcite plates. It has a five-fold symmetry, meaning that it divides itself into five, like five different pieces of a pie, and it's typically star-shaped. Most of the time, uh, these are benthic, meaning they live on the bottom of the ground. Do you guys know what benthic means now? Make sure you remember, because that one I will be using could be used on the exam. Make sure you know some of those words. Learned you learned that already? Okay. That That's good. And then uh, sometimes uh, some of these guys will actually be attached to uh, like a log. Like they'll almost form or look kind of like a lily pad and they'll be attached to a log and the log will be like floating around in the water and that's they're attached to that and that's how they feed themselves so the log just floats around and they float around and then they filter feed the organic matter out of the water uh, these are generally a little bit more picky so they like the clear the normal marine salinity this is the morphology of a crinoid so you can see here that it has like these little roots down here called the holdfast and then the columnal. Typically what you find in the rock record is the stock or the columnal right here. So this will actually break apart. It kind of, they look like little, little chips sometimes. They form like maybe the size of like a penny or a quarter. And then they can be kind of thick or a little bit thinner, maybe like half of an inch or something like that. And then another uh, other parts that you'll see is here. This is like the cup part of it. You'll just see this, the calyx, and then you can also see the branches. These are less common. You find this less often as a fossil. So here, this is a picture of them, of the columnals. So you can see the little segmented bits. And then sometimes they, they break apart and they can vary inside. These are really little. Normally the ones that I, I typically see are the ones that I have in my own collection are going to be about the size of a penny to a quarter. All right, so to answer this question, how many, um, how did so many different types of filter feeders coexist in the same area during the Paleozoic? So we've just talked about a really wide variety, a lot of different types of critters living in the Paleozoic. And um, we refer to this as community tiering. So this picture that I have on the slide right here, this is something from the modern. And um, this is just so you can kind of relate to it. Um, so in the modern, we have a starfish sitting over here. And then in the background, you'll actually see the coral reef and then you see the sea anemone. So typically these guys will are really picky where they grow. So most of them need clear water, warm water, uh, normal salinity, so this, the salt content um, won't be changing. And they essentially will grow on top of each other. And you need the whole reef needs to work together essentially to live. So sometimes what will happen is you can lose like one part of the reef and then the whole reef starts to die away. So it's really important. There's a lot of symbiotic relationships 
So where you need two animals, um, like or even a plant and an animal, need to coexist in order to survive. So that's uh, a lot of what happens in these sort of communities, is where you have both coexisting together. All right, so going back to the Cambrian, what you need to know for the Paleozoic. Um, these are a type of sponge, an archaeocyathid sponge. These are the index fossil for the Cambrian time period. So if you see this animal, you know without a doubt that you are in the Cambrian time period because they only live during the Cambrian. They're really, really beautiful sponges. They have, um, they're like a circular top, and then they have this really um, more delicate sort of body. Uh, during the Silurian to Devonian, so that's after the Precambrian, the reef that dominated was the stromatoporoid sponges, and this is what they look like. So you can see that the morphology going from the Cambrian right here to um, the Silurian and Devonian, it, they look completely different, and they're totally different animals. So really, really neat stuff. Um, these are cool. These are bizarre. Um, we have some of these where I grew up in Wisconsin um, in the limestones. They form limestone, and they're just like these little wrinkly bumps. They're really funny looking, kind of like a stromatolite, but they're not a stromatolite. They're a little bit different. We think they're actually an animal. There is somewhat of a debate of what they are. They're very, really, they're very poorly understood. Uh, this is the Silurian to Devonian, the tabulate corals. Uh, this is a picture of a coral from then. And then when we go to the Mississippian, so this is just going through geologic time a little bit later, uh, these are the Walsortian mud mounds. So on the flanks of the mud mounds, you see the crinoids. Uh, if you guys remember the little columnals, so they kind of look like lily pads, if you will, but they're not a plant. And then um, the center of the mound, this is Muleshoe Mound sitting right here. This is over in the Sacramento's. Uh, on your way to Alamogordo. This guy, uh, they have tons of Walsortian mounds over there. So Oliver Lee State Park, it's, I think it's to the east of Alamogordo. You can go camping there and hiking there. Uh, they have these algal mud mounds, if you will, and that is the the reef of the Mississippian time period. So each time period would have had a different style of coral reef. This is what uh, the algal mounds look like right here. So Phylloid algae, right in here. Really, really neat stuff. Um, they are they make these famous mounds, and uh, these two are referred to as Wilson and Corner Mounds. If you're ever driving, um, if you go past Alamogordo and then you take a right to go up to Rio Doso, that main road that goes up to Rio Doso, if you look on the left and the right-hand side of the highway, you'll see these outcrops looking up the side of the hills, like right after you make that turn and you start kind of going up the canyon, and you'll see the layers of the rocks, and then sometimes you'll see that the layers get fatter. When the layers get fatter, that is what these are, these mounds that would have made up the coral reefs of that time period. So really cool. And when you look at them, I mean, they're really neat, but you can see that they're not really super interesting to look at, <laughs> but they're cool. All right, now this is the Permian time period. So you guys, um, you're familiar with this. This is what's really cool about living in this area is we have access to all looking at all these types of rocks. Uh, this is the Permian Reef Complex, so Guadalupe Mountains. Um, let's see here, I'm trying to think of how you get there. You can get there a couple different ways. Um, I think probably the best way is if you take I-10 going east and then there's another road that kind of branches off 
if you were to head towards Midland, um, that's, that's the road that you would take. If you just pop it into Google, Guadalupe National, or yeah, is it a national park? I think it's a national park. Um, you can see it there. It's really, really cool. If you haven't been there, it's a, it makes for a great day trip. You can go there, uh, do a little hiking if you want, and then come back all in a day. It's a long day, but um, yeah. Oh, actually, it's on your way to Carlsbad. Yeah, not, not Midland, Carlsbad. Because if you keep going uh, further to the north, um, you'll actually hit Carlsbad Caverns. So you could technically do this. This hike, you can climb up to the top of this mountain right here. I've done it a couple times. It's absolutely beautiful. And what's really cool is if you were to climb to the top, you actually walk all the way through the reef succession. So you can see like the whole entire environment from the basin floor fans walking up where all the reef debris is, like where chunks of the reef have broken down. And you can see all the different types of corals and animals as you're walking all the way up. And then on the top is what we call um, like the tidal flats. So it's it's the area that is like landward of the reef. So it's actually more of... Um, it would be equivalent to like um, a modern day like Saudi Arabia if you will and um, yeah there's all sorts of really it's much more diverse during the t Permian time period so you see a lot of different types of um, calcis sponges and algal reefs so if you want to learn more about this or if you're at all interested in uh, visiting this just let me know I can uh, get you some more info it's pretty hard I mean you definitely uh, you start there's places where you don't you don't necessarily start at um, at the bottom. Oh, that was the last slide in this pack. But like you aren't going to necessarily start way down here and go all the way up. When you go over here, uh, this is this picture is facing north. So if you go a little bit onto the right hand side of the picture, um, it's towards the east and it's not as much relief. So it's not as tall as what it looks. And yeah, it's it's called McKittrick Canyon Trail. It's awesome. It takes you probably, I would say, if you're actually doing the guide, so it's a guided trail, and you can get a little booklet and it tells you what all the fossils are as you're walking up and there's all these stations. So if you spend time actually learning and doing the geology while you do the hiking, I'd say it takes maybe three or four hours. But if you just power walk it or power hike it, it may be two, two hours, a little bit shorter than that. But yeah, you can get up to the top. It's really, really cool. Highly recommend it. All right. So now we are going to shift over to uh, Paleozoic land plants. So we did the ocean. Now we're doing the land. All right. So this is the going back to our trees and our branches of plant evolution. Uh, you can see here that uh, these are all the different types of plants. Um, this is the ancestral green alga sitting right here. And uh, a lot of times you actually see this growing like in marshes and stuff. They're like little segmented plants. And then from there, um, you can evolve or you evolve uh, mosses, liverworts, hornworts, ferns, conifers, flowering plants are the latest um, to evolve. And then down here you have your vascular plants and then your seeds. So the plants that we know of now, nowadays are definitely different um, than the plants that would have existed in the Paleozoic. Very, very different. There were no flowers in the Pale Paleozoic, for example. Okay, these are the four major events in the evolution of land plants. So the key thing, you would have had uh, spores develop. You would have uh, the appearance of simple vascular 
spore-bearing land plants. You would have also had um, more advanced vascular spore-bearing land plants, and you would have also had the appearance of uh, gymnosperms, so seed-bearing plants. But you would not have had uh, fla flowers during the Paleozoic. Are you good? Sorry. Okay. No, no, I don't want to don't want to rush you from writing anything down. Spores. This is what the spores look like. Uh, these are the asexual reproductive units. Uh, this is under a microscope, so very very high powered microscope. This there is some similarities to this. So when you have uh, like pollen, it's different than pollen because uh, sexual reproduction takes place. But uh, you can think of it like a um, we do have spore issues like with allergens and stuff in the spring and if you have a lot of uh like mold for example if you have a lot of moisture in the air but this is this is what they look like really cool picture so we think that the oldest spores actually come from the ordovician um these are similar um we think that we see them in mosses that are found in marine limestone. So there could have been, it's, it's very controversial because technically we're talking about land plants and spores are on the land, but um, we see them in limestones, which mean that they could have been in shallow marine. So they could have been in water back in the Paleozoic. So just be open-minded to that. So even though we're talking about land plants, maybe some of these spores could have lived in shallow, shallow water at some point. We don't see them in terrestrial sedimentary rocks in the, in, the, in the Paleozoic, which is really interesting. So just taking that a little bit further, so thinking about that, okay, so what would be the origin of them? What, where would they come from? Um, these are just some hypotheses. They could potentially represent terrestrial spores, but maybe they were washed into the water. And that's why we see them as fossils in limestones, because limestones represent the water, the ocean. Um, could they possibly represent the spores of the marine plants? So were there some sort of marine plant giving them off? I don't think we know of this happening today. And then um, basically until we see them in land rocks, terrestrial rocks, we don't exactly know what the oldest plants are. So this is sort of an area in uh, geology, in paleontology, if you will, uh, that could potentially be um, a place where new discoveries could be made. So yeah, a lot of times in this stuff, you'll see open-ended open, open -ended questions where we don't really know the answers to, and that's perfectly okay. So this is uh, a picture of what it looks like. Um, this is found in uh, a terrestrial sediment, so it was not deposited in an ocean or a body of water. And you can see that it's a really funky looking thing. So you have these branches and that this could potentially be the spore, where the spores came from up here. But we're not really sure exactly. This is what uh, the plant vascular system looks like. So once again, um, it's good just to have a general idea, but I won't be quizzing you on all these, these pieces down here. Uh, it was mostly composed of a set of tubes, so you can think of it like a straw, if you will. And the water would have transported uh, the nutrients up and down the plant. So very similar to how plants work today. Um, and then another key thing to note is that it provides support for the plant. So it can be erect and it can stand up. So this is very different uh, than moss, because moss doesn't really have like these branches. It just grows on the ground. 
This is what we think earlier early vascular plants would have looked like. So they would have been very simple. So just real simple branches and then you can see the, the spore bearing part would be up here. We don't think they had roots. We don't think they had leaves or wood. So we don't see evidence of any of that in the fossil record. You would expect maybe some of that to perhaps be preserved, but we don't see that preserved. We just see these stems and then these little pods that sit on the end that are thought to be the pores. Okay, these are just some key characteristics. Uh, they appear in the early Devonian. They, um, they have uh, roots, leaves, and wood. So the first one that I talked about was the simple. These are the advanced. So this is another group. Um, all spore bearers must have uh, standing water to reproduce. So these are essentially restricted uh, to wet climates or in close proximity to rivers and lakes because of the roots. So they needed to be by or near water. Um, yeah, and then just another key thing is these spore-bearing plants, they could not colonize uh, large expanses of dry land because they needed to be by the water. So that's just a key characteristic. Uh, there are three main groups uh, within the advanced vascular spore-bearing plants, lycopods, sphenopsids, uh, there's a lot of complicated words, um, and then ferns. So ferns, you guys are, I'm sure you guys, you guys all know what a fern is, hopefully? Yeah, okay. So club mosses, this is a picture of what they would have looked like in the rock record over here. These range in age from Devonian to recent. They would have been tall trees, so 30 meters tall. It's really, really tall. Um, in the Paleozoic, and uh, the reason that we know that they exist is that they are dominated by coal swamps. So when we mine and dig for coal, maybe not so much in our country, but like in some place like Australia or China where they, they dig out a lot of coal, coal beds, that's where you actually see these guys be preserved, is they have now turned into coal. Um, they are actually around today, but they're relatively rare and they're much, much smaller. They're definitely not 30 meters tall. And they're composed of narrow leaves with a single vein attached directly to the trunk. So you can see this is a penny over here for scale. This would be basically a piece of coal. Lycopods. These are really cool. So here's another picture of them. Uh, these are the best fossil impressions of the tree trunk right here. So this is the trunk of the tree. It sort of has like bark. It kind of reminds you of like what, uh, like a crocodile skin. That's what the bark looked like. And then these are the little leaves that would have been attached to it that have fallen down. This is um, another piece of the trunk. So you can definitely see, I think this totally looks like a tree trunk right here. And then you can see that this may have been like a root starting to go into the ground. Uh, this is the other branch. Uh, we'll just call these horsetails. Uh, if you go to a marsh or a swamp, probably not so much here, but if you go further north, um, you actually have plants that look very similar to these, these segmented plants. Uh, the age range for this guy is Devonian through the recent. So yeah, they are alive today, but they're rare and relatively small. Um, back then, they would have been moderate sized trees, so 10 meters. So not as big as the first one, but they were definitely still pretty large. They would have had the segments. So the segments are these bits right here. Oops, go back a slide. So these are the segments right here. 
They would have uh, mostly lived along a lake or a river. And uh, they also have uh, rhizomes underground. So rhizomes are like those little bits that grow off of like potatoes and stuff. If you let the potatoes sit too long, they start growing like the little roots. These would have had the same thing. So that's one thing in geology. We're always trying to relate what we saw back then to something now so you can kind of un understand it and identify with it. Otherwise, some of these things are like really abstract and kind of hard to, to wrap your mind around. This is another one, Annulara. So this is really beautiful, not common at all. So this was found in a concretion. And um, yeah, this is essentially where the leaves and the branches would have radiated from. It's really, really cool. But I honestly, I have never seen one of these in a fossil. I think they're really, really rare. So I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't worry so much about, about this one. Calamites, this one's pretty common as well. Uh, these are big stems. So these are just essentially, they look like tree logs, but they're segmented. See how you have this segment here and the segment here. That's the key, the key characteristic. And when you see them, it'll be segmented. And these are uh, dominated during the Pennsylvanian. And then ferns. So this is something that I think you guys can totally identify with, hopefully. Um, the age range for this is Devonian till the recent, recent obviously. Uh, these would have been small bushes and tongue-shaped leaves. And then they have this beautiful vein pattern. Um, you have modern examples, and the modern is virtually the same as the Paleozoic. So this is one thing that it's really neat because it's relatively unchanged. It would have survived all those mass extinctions, the end Permian, the end Mesozoic, all of that. So I think that's really, really cool. Okay, so then going into the gymnosperms. So this is late Mississippian through the recent. Uh, these are the ones that have pollen and they have seeds. So these are probably... Um, something more that we can identify with today. And uh, just to note, the mechanism would have worked the same where you have the pollen and the seeds that were dispersed by the wind. Um, pollen has a moist tube and within the pollen, it has um, the sperm that is used to reach the eggs. So these uh, sexual reproduction would take place for these guys. Uh, they don't necessarily need the standing water to reproduce. Uh, they can they utilize the wind. So they could have potentially colonized large areas of dry land. So these are not necessarily going to be restricted to places uh, that the other ones were, the spore-bearing plants. We see three types in the Paleozoic. Uh, we see the seed ferns, uh, the cord cordates, I don't know exactly how to say that, and then the conifers. This is uh, an example of a seed fern. So these would have been medium-sized trees with fern-like uh, fronds and leaflets, and then they would have had a seed pod. So they look similar to the ferns, the regular ferns, but they have the seed pod. These became extinct in the Mesozoic. All right, so this is something um, we have talked about before. I'm not gonna get too far off on this, but. One of the reasons um, that we know that plate tectonics exists and we would have had supercontinents, so all the continents would have been connected, is we see belts of fossils that match up across the continents. Um, so here is just a, a very generalized depiction of that. You have fossil remains of this dinosaur, for example, that you can see across South America and Africa. 
Same, this fossil over here, this Triassic land reptile, spread from Africa, Madagascar, India, and Antarctica. And then the, the, some of the fossil plants that we're going to talk about, Glossopterus over here, the seed ferns, the one we just spoke about. This one actually spans from Australia to Antarctica. You see it in India, Madagascar, Africa, and South America. So you see it on all those different continents, all the same age. So that's one of the lines of the evidence that we think that all the continents actually were together. And this assemblage would have been known as Pangaea, if you guys remember talking about Pangaea. This is what it looks like. So really beautiful leaf. Um, it sort of looks like a live, like an oak leaf in a way. Um, not like the ones that have all the, the spines on it, but some of the, or like a magnolia leaf maybe would be a better, a better um, depiction of it. But they're really, really beautiful. This is what the trees would have looked like. So you had the trunk, you had the leaves somewhat similar to um, like a magnolia, and then you would have the roots sitting down here. So they're relatively tall with narrow leaves. They would have been closely spaced, and then by the end of the Paleozoic, these guys were extinct. This is what they look like in a rock. So they're very uh, like elongated. They have really closely spaced veins. So each of these little lines right here is a vein. And the key thing, you know, when you're looking at a leaf, you kind of have like the main vein and then you have the branching veins. Um, this does not have that. It just has all these really small, uh, tiny veins across here. All right, and then going on to the conifers. So these are trees with needle-shaped leaves and cones. So little pine cones. Um, these are, we have modern pine trees, firs and spruces, and, um, they're common Paleozoic species in the Southwest US, so around here, this is the name of them. So that's what this is. It's Wal Walkita or Walchita, right over here. Okay, so I think I already touched on this. So this isn't, um, this is just reiterating that a lot of uh, the land plants that we see from the Paleozoic um, are actually forming coal. So depending on how um, mature the coal is, if you will, you may be able to see some of those original fabrics of the plant. But if the coal is super mature, um, you may, it may actually destroy some of those original uh, fabrics, like the shape of the leaves and the branches and stuff like that. This is a diagram on how you form coal over time. So you would have had um, your swamp, if you will. So there would have been probably some water in association with water. This is what the system would have looked like. So you have the ferns and then you have the spore bearing trees, um, all of that. And then through time, um, you have other rocks that get deposited on top of it. It gets compressed um, and you add a little bit of heat. So you have time, pressure, heat, and then you essentially form uh, coal. And that's what we burn and use in elect for electricity in some parts of the world. These are the coal beds. Um, I'm not gonna expect you necessarily to know that, to know this, but just generally know that you can find coal in the Eastern US, Western Europe, Russia, Russia, China, and Australia. This is where uh, they're located in um, the Pennsylvanian coals in North America. So you can see here uh, the coal swamps. They're kind of mostly scattered throughout the Midwest so this is Wisconsin where I grew up, so yeah. So going 
mostly through the Midwest and getting a little bit over to the east over here. Okay, that is all that I have for you in terms of the PowerPoint. Um, you guys are free to get started on your lecture and I'll be sure to post this. Um, this recording will be on the link that I sent you in the email. So if you need to study, um, you can do that.